0: Part one, Chapter six of Tolstoy on Shakespeare. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Robert Fletcher. Tolstoy on Shakespeare. A critical essay on Shakespeare by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Vladimir Chertov and Isabella Five Mayo. Part one, Chapter six but perhaps the height of shakespeare's conception of life is such that though he does not satisfy the aesthetic demands he discloses to us a view of life so new and important for men that in consideration of its importance all his failures as an artist become imperceptible so indeed say shakespeare's admirers Gervina says distinctly that besides Shakespeare's significance in the sphere of dramatic poetry in which, according to his opinion, Shakespeare equals Homer in the sphere of Epos, Shakespeare, being the very greatest judge of the human soul, represents a teacher of most indisputable ethical authority and the most select leader in the world and in life. In what, then, consists this indisputable authority of the most select leader in the world and in life? Gervinus devotes the concluding chapter of his second volume, about 50 pages, to an explanation of this. The ethical authority of this supreme teacher of life consists in the following. The starting point of Shakespeare's conception of life, says Gervinus, is that man is gifted with powers of activity, and therefore, first of all, according to Gervinus, Shakespeare regarded it as good and necessary for man that he should act, as if it were possible for a man not to act. Die dat craftigen manier, Fotenbrass, Bolingbroke, Alcibiades, Octavius, schwielen ihr die gegen sachlichen, rollen gegen die werst die denen verlossen. Nicht ihre Chakretere verdienen ichnen, Achen ihr Gluck und giden heyn et wa durk in grosse, ueberlingenheit ihrer Natur, sondern trotz ihrer gen gringen, allage stilt sieg ihre dat kraft, and seek over die Udgenzeit, der anderen inaus, gleich aus wie schoner, quell diese passivität aus wie schlechter gene, that in geit Active people like Fortinbras, Bolingbroke, Alcibiades, Octavius, says Gervinus, are placed in contrast by Shakespeare with various characters who do not exhibit energetic activity. And happiness and success, according to Shakespeare, are attained by individuals possessing this active character, not at all owing to the superiority of their nature. On the contrary, notwithstanding their inferior gifts, the capacity of activity itself always gives them the advantage over inactivity, quite independent of any consideration whether the inactivity of some persons flows from excellent impulses and the activity of others from bad ones. Activity is good. Inactivity is evil. Activity transforms evil into good, says Shakespeare, according to Gervinus. Shakespeare refers to the principle of Alexander of Macedonia, to that of Diogenes, says Gervinus. In other words, he prefers death and murder due to ambition, to abstinence and wisdom. According to Gervinus, Shakespeare believes that humanity need not set up ideals, but that only healthy activity and the golden mean are necessary in everything indeed shakespeare is so penetrated by this conviction that according to gervinus assertion he allows himself to deny even christian morality which makes exaggerated demands on human nature shakespeare as we read did not approve of limits of duty exceeding the intentions of nature he teaches the golden mean between heathen hatred to one's enemies and christian love toward them how far shakespeare was penetrated with this fundamental principle of reasonable moderation says gervinus, can be seen from the fact that he has the courage to express himself even against the Christian rules which prompt human nature to the excessive exertion of its powers. He did not admit that the limits of duty should exceed the biddings of nature. Therefore he preached a reasonable mean natural to man, between Christian and heathen precepts of love towards one enemies on the one hand and hatred toward them on the other. That one may do too much good, exceed the reasonable limits of good, is convincingly proved by Shakespeare's words and examples. Thus excessive generosity ruins Timon, while Antonio's moderate generosity confers honor. Normal ambition makes Henry V great, whereas it ruins Percy, in whom it has risen too high. Excessive virtue leads Angelo to destruction, and if, in those who surround him, excessive severity becomes harmful and cannot prevent crime, on the other hand the divine element in man, even charity, if it be excessive, can create crime. Shakespeare taught, says Gervinus, that one may be too good. He teaches that morality, like politics, is a matter in which, owing to the complexity of circumstances and motives, one cannot establish any principles. And in this, he agrees with Bacon and Aristotle. There are no positive religious and moral laws which may create principles for correct moral conduct suitable for all cases. Gervinus most clearly expresses the whole of Shakespeare's moral theory by saying that Shakespeare does not write for those classes for whom definite religious principles and laws are suitable, i.e. for 999 one-thousandths of men, but for the educated. There are classes of men whose morality is best guarded by the positive precepts of religion and state law. To such persons Shakespeare's creations are inaccessible they are comprehensible and accessible only to the educated, from whom one can expect that they should acquire the healthy tact of life and self-consciousness, by means of which the innate guiding powers of conscience and reason, uniting with the will, lead us to the definite attainment of worthy aims in life. But even for such educated people, Shakespeare's teaching is not always without danger." The condition on which his teaching is quite harmless is that it should be accepted in all its completeness, in all its parts, without any omission. Then it is not only without danger, but is the most clear and faultless and therefore the most worthy of confidence of all moral teaching. In order thus to accept all, one should understand that, according to his teaching, it is stupid and harmful for the individual to revolt against or endeavor to overthrow the limits of established religious and state forms shakespeare says gervinus would abhor an independent and free individual who with a powerful spirit should struggle against all convention in politics and morality and overstep that union between religion and the state which has for thousands of years supported society according to his views the practical wisdom of men could not have a higher object than the introduction into society of the greatest spontaneity and freedom but precisely because of this one should safeguard as sacred and irrefragable the natural laws of society one should respect the existing order of things and continually verifying it inculcate its rational sides not overlooking nature for the sake of culture or vice versa property the family the state are sacred but aspiration towards the recognition of the equality of men is insanity its realization would bring humanity to the greatest calamities no one struggled more than shakespeare against the privileges of rank and position but could this free-thinking man resign himself to the privileges of the wealthy and educated being destroyed in order to give room to the poor and ignorant how could a man who so eloquently attracts people toward honors permit that the very aspiration toward that which was great be crushed together with rank and distinction for services and with the destruction of all degrees the motives for all high undertakings be stifled even if the attraction of honors and false power treacherously obtained were to cease could the poet admit of the most dreadful of all violence that of the ignorant crowd he saw that thanks to this equality now preached everything may pass into violence and violence into arbitrary acts and thence into unchecked passion which will rend the world as the wolf does its prey and in the end the world will swallow itself up even if this does not happen with mankind when it attains equality if the love of nations and eternal peace prove not to be that impossible nothing as alonzo expressed it in the tempest but on the contrary the actual attainment of aspirations towards equality is possible then the poet would deem that the old age and extinction of the world had approached and that therefore for active individuals it is not worth while to live such is shakespeare's view of life as demonstrated by his greatest exponent and admirer another of the most modern admirers of shakespeare george Brandis, further sets forth no one of course can conserve his life quite pure from evil from deceit and from the injury of others but evil and deceit are not always vices and even the evil caused to others is not necessarily a vice it is often merely a necessity a legitimate weapon a right and indeed shakespeare always held that there are no unconditional prohibitions nor unconditional duties for instance he did not doubt hamlet's right to kill the king nor even his right to stab polonius to death and yet he could not restrain himself from an overwhelming feeling of indignation and repulsion when, looking around, he saw everywhere how incessantly the most elementary moral laws were being infringed. Now in his mind there was formed, as it were, a closely riveted ring of thoughts concerning which he had always vaguely felt. Such unconditional commandments do not exist." The quality and significance of an act, not to speak of a character, do not depend upon their enactment or infringement. The whole substance lies in the contents with which the separate individual, at the moment of his decision and on his own responsibility, fills up the form of laws. In other words, Shakespeare at last clearly saw that the moral of the aim is the only true and possible one, so that, according to Brandis shakespeare's fundamental principle for which he extols him is that the end justifies the means action at all costs the absence of all ideals moderation in everything the conservation of the forms of life once established and the end justifying the means if you add to this a chauvinist english patriotism expressed in all the historical dramas a patriotism according to which the english throne is something sacred englishmen always vanquishing the french killing thousands and losing only scores joan of Arc regarded as a witch and the belief that hector and all the trojans from whom the english came are heroes while the greeks are cowards and traitors and so forth such is the view of life of the wisest teacher of life according to his greatest admirers and he who will attentively read shakespeare's works cannot fail to recognize that the description of this Shakespearean view of life by his admirers is quite correct. The merit of every poetic work depends on three things. 1. The subject of the work. The deeper the subject, i.e. the more important it is to the life of mankind, the higher is the work. 2. The external beauty achieved by technical methods proper to the particular kind of art thus in dramatic art the technical method will be a true individuality of language corresponding to the characters a natural and at the same time touching plot a correct scenic rendering of the demonstration and a development of emotion and the feeling of measure in all that is represented three sincerity i.e that the author should himself keenly feel what he expresses Without this condition, there can be no work of art, as the essence of art consists in the contemplation of the work of art being infected with the author's feeling. If the author does not actually feel what he expresses, then the recipient cannot become infected with the feeling of the author, does not experience any feeling, and the production can no longer be classified as a work of art. The subject of Shakespeare's pieces, as is seen from the demonstrations of his greatest admirers, is the lowest, most vulgar view of life, which regards the external elevation of the lords of the world as a genuine distinction, despises the crowd, i.e. the working classes, repudiates not only all religious but also all humanitarian, strivings directed to the betterment of the existing order. The second condition also, with the exception of the rendering of the scenes in which the movement of feelings is expressed, is quite absent in Shakespeare. He does not grasp the natural character of the positions of his personages, nor the language of the persons represented, nor the feeling of measure without which no work can be artistic. The third and most important condition, sincerity, is completely absent in all Shakespeare's works, and all of them one sees intentional artifice, one sees that he is not in earnest, but that he is playing with words." End of chapter 6